This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The longest-serving member of Colorado's congressional delegation wants a more prominent role, especially now that Democrats will control the House. Diana DeGette of Denver is vying to become the majority whip. What would that mean for her constituents and for the future of the House? Representative DeGette, welcome to the program. It's great being with you, Ryan. This is the third most powerful position in the House. What is the job and why do you want it? Well, the the job of WHIP really involves working with the caucus to pass legislation and get it across the plate to the Senate and, and for hopefully to the president for signature. And, and I think the Democrats really showed in the election Tuesday that they can take the majority. Now they have to show that they can govern. And even though the Democrats won a number of seats, we still are in the majority by a very slim margin. Right now, it's it's under um, 10 seats. And so you really have to have somebody who can work across the whole caucus, from the most liberal, liberal member to the conservative blue dog members, to put together an agenda that the American public expects. Well, and an agenda that clears a Republican-led Senate, in fact, a more deeply Republican-led Senate, and a Republican president. Certainly, that is the goal, is to actually get legislation passed into law. But, you know, we we made a promise to our constituents that we would work on health care pricing, infrastructure, that we would work on campaign finance reform, passing comprehensive immigration reform. These are all issues that Republicans have said that they were interested in working on, too, and even the president. But when you're in the majority, it really takes a special knack to be able to put together the votes to find that sweet spot where you can actually pass meaningful legislation. I've shown over the years that I can do that with a number of pieces of legislation. I've been chief deputy whip for seven terms in Congress now, and so I really feel like I've got the chops to do that. You once again sailed to re-election with 77 percent of the vote. The changes to Colorado's delegation were in the second district. Joe Nagus of Boulder will be the first African-American member of Congress from Colorado. And attorney and veteran Jason Crow beat out Republican Mike Kaufman. Crow told me on election night that it's time for an entirely new generation of leadership. We do need folks who have not been spending the last 10, 15, 20 years in Washington fighting these political games. You know, we do need those new folks that can uh, actually step up and get it done. Okay, you've been in Congress for 20 years. It kind of sounds like you fit the mold that Crow is talking about. I mean, sh- should this job go to someone who's more of an outsider? Well, interestingly, I am the new generation of leadership in the House of Representatives right now because I'm I'm a whole generation younger than Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, and Jim Clyburn, who are the top three Democratic leaders right now. And one thing about being a whip is you have to know how Congress works. You have to know the rules. You have to know how to work with the members and how to legislate. So it's it's kind of a good balance because I'm actually the breath of fresh air for this Congress, but I've been there long enough, so I actually know how to pass legislation. 20 years is a breath of fresh air. Yeah, that's the way Congress works. Uh, Do you think the leadership should change at the very top? That is to say, would you like to see someone in the speaker's role other than Nancy Pelosi? Well, I haven't seen anybody 
in the last day or so step up to say they wanted to run against Nancy Pelosi. I think that we need to look at all of our leaders. All of our leaders are 79 years old. So whether or not they win this time, we're going to have to look at a transition. And we really are going to have to look at bringing new people in to help lead this Congress in the new Democratic majority. What is running for this post, uh, Diana DeGette? What does it mean for the constituents in Denver, like, do they just see less of you or, you know, do you bring home more bacon? Like, what does it mean? You know, we've never had somebody in our top leadership in the House who's from the Rocky Mountain West. And so having me be in, in the whip position, I would be much more attuned to transportation issues, to public lands issues, to the issues that we have here in the West. Uh, I will say, I don't think my constituents will see any less of me because I still intend to come home every weekend, just like I always have. Should the House investigate the president? Uh, Absolutely, the House should investigate the president. In particular, we need to get his tax returns. Every other presidential candidate has released their tax returns. Donald Trump refused to do it, and then he worked with the Republican-led Congress to pass um, a tax cut bill targeted primarily at wealthy people like him and, and corporations. And I think that it's really important to know if these laws that he's promoting benefit him personally. The only way you can do that is to get his tax returns. The other thing that we need to do, and this I think is a mandate from the American public, we need to hold the president's feet to the fire in terms of his environmental policies, in terms of his health care policies, and in terms of a lot of the executive actions and the rules that his agencies have taken. So we need to be responsible, we need to be respectful, but we need to issue those subpoenas. And at the same time, you'd like President Trump eventually to sign off on legislation you'd be a part of related to immigration reform, related to campaign finance. Are those two possible with this president? Well, I... You know, don't don't ask me for my opinion on Donald Trump because I don't know what he'll do. In the past, he's shown he is willing to work with people if he thinks that it promotes his agenda or even with his own party. He refuses to work with him if he doesn't think it can help him. So I think if he felt like working with Democrats on immigration reform or on transportation and infrastructure would help him, I think he would work with us in a minute. But in the meantime, what the voters have done by giving the House to the Democrats is they've shown that we have reestablished our system of checks and balances that the founders of this country tried to establish in our Constitution. Uh, finally, do you have any interest in starting impeachment proceedings? Um, you know, I've, I, I've been waiting to see Bob Mueller's investigation report. I think now that the election is over, we will see that report. I'm a lawyer, so I want to see all the evidence. I think that impeachment is the highest form of sanction you can take against the president, obviously. And I think you have to take that very, very seriously, and I do. So I want to, I want to see all the evidence. Interesting to note that uh, Jeff Sessions has resigned at the president's request. I, uh, that did not surprise me at all. I was I, I thought he would probably hang on till right after the election. Thanks for being with us, Representative. Thanks for having me. Take care. 
Democrat Diana DeGette represents Denver in Congress, and she hopes to become House Majority Whip. You heard her response to the dismissal of Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Colorado's U.S. senators are also weighing in. Democrat Michael Bennett tweeted, Our institutions are being tested. He says the Senate's majority Republicans must stand up for the rule of law instead of cowering from its responsibility as an independent check on the president. Bennett also calls on his colleagues to protect the Mueller investigation. Republican Cory Gardner did not directly address the Mueller probe, but tweeted that he remains committed to defending the rule of law and the rights and decisions of Coloradans. Gardner says he will make sure the administration leaves marijuana regulation to the states. Slavery in Colorado will be fully abolished because voters approved Amendment A on Tuesday. The man behind that campaign is Jamoki Emery. He has been at this for years, and thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. I want to say that voters rejected a similar measure in 2016, but this time it passed with 65% support. Both times it was referred to the ballot by the state legislature, I think unanimously, is that right? Unanimously, yeah. 100% of the vote. Why was this so important to you? <sighs> you know, um, slavery as an institution should never be, um, it, it shouldn't live somewhere codified within our laws. No matter how we feel about the criminal justice system, whether it's doing a good job or a bad job, we should be pretty clear on the fact that it shouldn't be slavery. The Constitution rests as the moral and legal basis of all the other laws in our state and in our country. We don't want the language of slavery continually institutionalized there as a backdoor for that to be used and abused again. So Amendment A changed the state constitution to say there shall never be in this state either slavery or involuntary servitude. And it removed this language, except as punishment for crime— whereof the party shall have been duly convicted. Uh, But on the the federal level, I just want to say the U.S. Constitution still includes that kind of exception. Uh, How do you reconcile that then? You know, the dream is to go across the nation and, and to build the sort of movement where we can address that in the 13th Amendment. Because whether that's on a state level or on a national level, that language needs to go. Slavery needs to be abolished once and for all. At the same time that you are celebrating an electoral victory, you're also dealing with something of a frightening situation. The day before the election, someone left a pile of smoldering Amendment A flyers burning on the front porch of your Denver home. I understand your wife discovered them as she came out to do some yard work. Yeah, somewhere around 3.30 on, was that Monday afternoon, um, I got a phone call from my wife, obviously distraught, incredibly upset saying that I need to come home immediately. Um, I was at work at the time at my office, um, ran home and came to find a burning mess on my front porch directly outside my door. Let me say that you are African-American, and the reason that I identify you as such is because uh, this conjures up to me images of, of a cross burning on a lawn. I don't know if that's something that you have equated this with. I don't want to put words in your mouth. Um, that's that's exactly what what... I equate this with um, as I'm working on a campaign to abolish slavery, that that connection, um, it'd be impossible to escape that. Um, The obvious intent to intimidate um, and terrorize my family because of my work. Police are investigating. Is that right? 
police are investigating it. <laughs> I've got to say it, it took them a while. Uh, gave them a couple of calls on Monday and um, didn't get any response until uh, Tuesday morning that they were going to investigate. Um, but um, it was important to us to, to document this, to make uh, to make it known to the world that you, you don't just get to terrorize folks working for justice. We won't we won't be deterred. My understanding is that uh, police seemed to respond more uh, vehemently more. They seem to be more invested after this got some press coverage. Do you think that's true? Uh, I, I know it to be true. Okay. <laughs> we received a question through our Colorado Wonders project in which listeners ask us questions about the state. Uh, and this listener notes that the amendment to abolish slavery garnered more than 600,000 votes for no um, actually, as more ballots have been counted, that number has surpassed 700,000 no votes. And this listener seemed gobsmacked <laughs> that there were so many no votes. Um, so I took to Twitter to ask people why they voted no. And the chief concern I heard was that this would limit work programs for people who are incarcerated and that it might even limit court-ordered community service. Will you address that concern, please? Absolutely. And that's a that was a huge concern to us going going into this, um, because although the language of slavery needs to go, we're very clear that work release programs, community service, um, those things actually help um, in terms of system. And so we wanted to make sure that those programs wouldn't be eliminated in the course of our work. We did our due diligence ahead of time through the legislature with the ACLU, making sure that abolishing slavery in our Constitution has nothing to do with voluntary with voluntary community service, um, work release programs. Um, to my understanding, those programs are seen as voluntary. So what I think I hear you saying is that there is no direct practical effect of removing that language from the Constitution, that it is more symbolic. Do you think that's true? I wouldn't say it's symbolic at all because the Constitution isn't a symbolic document. Um, as I said earlier, um, the Constitution serves as the legal foundation for the rest of the statute in our state um, and likewise in the nation. So for us changing the, the wording of that living document, that's more than a symbolic measure to us. I see what you're saying there, but I, I guess partly what I'm asking is, is there a direct impact on a program or something underway right now in the state of Colorado? As of the passage of this amendment, no. No. Okay. Uh, we did reach out to the Colorado Department of Corrections to get some more clarity and uh, that agency doesn't actually take positions on ballot measures, but it does say that potential future impacts to correctional industries programs are unknown at this time. Uh, so whereas you're saying uh, you have assurances that it really doesn't affect prison work programs, uh, the Department of Corrections is saying eh, it's a little up in the air. How do you respond? Again, I would say that affecting prison work programs, work release, community service, um, all of that is incredibly important as it stands. My hope in passing this amendment is that we continue to have a larger conversation, both um, legislatively, um, judicially, um, and a social conversation around what what corrections looks like in this country. What 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 does prison look like in this country? Um, so you do hope to spark a conversation that touches on corrections. And it's a conversation that's already been happening mm -hmm. um, for, for years, even decades now. And that conversation includes what inmates are paid and to what extent work is a part of 
their uh, well of, of corrections uh, and to what extent it might be relying too heavily on cheap labor. I think that's part of the debate here. I think that's absolutely um, a huge part of the conversation. Um, to what extent has corrections, has our current prison system evolved from the practice of chattel slavery and what vestiges are still left that we need to remove? Absolutely. Okay. So it is a broader conversation that you hope to start. Um, we also heard from folks who just thought the language was a little confusing and um, that there are some who vote no when they don't necessarily understand something on their ballot or aren't clear on what its repercussions might be. In other words, sticking with the status quo. Uh, Amendment A did pass statewide, but we looked at the counties where it failed, uh, and they include Fremont County, where there's a huge federal and state prison complex. I suppose that reflects the concern about the impact on inmates. What do you make of those who voted no? We've added some nuance to that picture. What might you add? You know, at this point, it's it's all speculation. Um, there there could be numerous reasons why you know folks chose to vote no or Either they were still confused by the language, either they didn't have their concerns cleared up act, you know, adequately enough around work release and community service. Um, I'd like to, I'd like to hope in my heart of hearts that very few people actually voted to keep slavery in the Constitution, just just for kicks. Mm. How are you feeling about the victory before we go? It's, huh, it's. It's complicated both with what's happened on my doorstep at my house, both with um, the culmination of years of work um, and also looking forward to the work ahead. This is just the first step of many. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Jamoki Emery was behind Amendment A to fully abolish slavery from the state constitution. It passed, as we said, with 65 percent support. Voters said no to both statewide tax increases on this year's ballot, but many local taxes passed. CPR's Grace Hood takes a closer look. Cities and counties asked for broadband money, marijuana taxes, more amenities for parks. Some volunteer fire departments fought for their financial lives. You don't get much more affordable than us. John Lee is chief of the Fort Lewis Mesa Fire Protection District. It's west of Durango and leans Republican. Volunteers stretch out to cover 350 square miles with a budget of $300,000. That's not a lot of cash when you consider rising gas and equipment costs. It's the first due fire truck or brush truck or ambulance that's going to show up at their doorstep or their neighbor's. And our volunteers, they live in the district. They care about it. Ultimately, voters there approved a tax increase that gives the fire district $60 more per household. Sam Mamet with the Colorado Municipal League says cities and towns approved 56 percent of all tax questions. Parks, recreation, sewer plants, water treatment facilities and roads are the big ticket items. That's in stark contrast to statewide issues that sought to raise money for schools and roads and failed. Mamet says specific appeals work. But 2018 also hinted at deep, unresolved financial issues for rural Colorado. Mamet says the problem stems from a 1980s-era law that can drive down what rural tax assessors collect on properties. It's a specific law called the Gallagher Amendment. I think that that issue is one of the single most important matters the legislature 
legislature needs to deal with next session. Fort Lewis Mesa and other fire protection districts asked voters to disconnect from Gallagher, and they won. But 2018 also brought failure for struggling rural governments. In Sedgwick County near the Nebraska border, voters rejected a sales tax hike. Don Schneider is a county commissioner. Just stick to your stomach of what we have to do now to make the county whole. Schneider says the county will look at layoffs to make ends meet. The decision will be made by mid-December, far before the state legislature maps out priorities for next year. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. A slate of independent candidates for Colorado state legislature didn't log any wins this election. Still, the group supporting them, Unite Colorado, says it did lay a foundation for future challenges to the two-party system. Nick Troiano is executive director of Unite Colorado, as well as the national group Unite America, which has similar goals in other states. And welcome back to the program, Nick. Thank you, Ryan. Remind us what you'd hope to achieve by getting independent candidates elected. In other words, what opportunity do you believe Colorado has lost here? Well, as we see growing polarization in our politics with both parties moving further to their extremes, our objective is to elect independent candidates who can help bridge the partisan divide who are only beholden to the people of their district, not the parties and not the special interests who fund campaigns. And the strategy was to create something of a fulcrum effect. Will you describe how you thought that might work in something like the state Senate, for instance? Yeah, long term, the aspiration is that independents could actually control the balance of power in narrowly divided legislatures. If neither party has a majority, they need to reach across the aisle to get votes to pass legislation and to elect leadership, which could have a uh, important moderating force on the legislature. All right. You had five independent candidates, I believe, in Colorado legislative races. Three of them only got in the single digits in the election. One, Thea Chase in Palisade got 34 percent of the vote. She lost to a Republican. I don't believe there was a Democrat in that race. Uh, independent candidate Paul Jones of Durango got 44 percent of the vote and lost to his sole challenger, a Democrat. Why didn't they win? Well, we were excited to see on Tuesday that independent candidates won more votes in 2018 than the last seven election cycles combined. And what that tells us is that there's forward momentum among voters in the states who want another option. Paul Jones, as you mentioned, in House District 59 was the most competitive independent candidate, we believe, in the last 100 years. So no one said this would happen overnight. Challenging the political duopoly is not easy, but we've certainly made progress towards it. And there's ways to win without actually winning elections because you force new competition into the system. In two of those races, voters otherwise wouldn't have had another option. And when we look forward in the legislature in the past, members really only were looking over their shoulders for their next primary challenge, which pushes them to the extremes. In the future, I think all legislators are now thinking about, will there be an independent challenge uh, in the future? And so they'll have greater incentive to want to work across the aisle. So you think that it did have a moderating effect on those races? Did you see changes in positions or language that indicated that was the case? Well, in one race that Jay Geyer was running in, uh, his opponent uh, stopped taking special interest money from the oil and gas industry because all of our candidates that we supported did not accept PAC contributions. It changed the dynamic. In Paul Jones's district, uh, the incumbent representative was going around just talking about how bipartisan she was and how it's so important to work across the aisle. So certainly, uh, new competition changed the dynamics of these races. Your group has been accused of violating state campaign finance laws, claiming you accepted more donations than allowed under state law, and that you didn't report fully who your donors were. Uh, Do you think that that affected support for the candidates? 
Well, first, those complaints and accusations are false. Uh, they were filed by uh, allies of the candidates that our, our folks were running against. Um, Unite Colorado. You think that they were politically motivated? They were politically motivated. Uh, Unite Colorado is not a political party. We're a new type of movement that's comprised of several different organizations. And so the complaints uh, point to different organizations and accuse them of doing activities they don't and fail to recognize there are organizations like the Unite Colorado Election Fund that are registered and fully disclosed donors that are active in the state. And so it is a case in point of how the political duopoly is willing to go to any length to protect its own lock on power. And let me say know, that the secretary of state's office thinks that there is enough to the claims, at least that it's moving forward with looking into it. They say that these are important questions that are being asked. And we agree, because if what's being alleged in the complaints is true, it would violate the law. But the underlying fact is what's being alleged isn't. And so we are eager to see this process work itself out and to show how uh, this organization is not only fully compliant, but is an important part of the political dynamic going forward. A plurality of voters in the state are independents. There are zero in the state legislature. Uh, we need to give them some representation. In fact, the last time I looked at the numbers, unaffiliated voters had actually voted in greater numbers than both of the parties. Absolutely. Okay. And there was other success, including passage of uh, the anti-gerrymandering measures, uh, campaign finance reform measures here in Denver, and overall effort to make sure our politics should be representing the people. What's the next step, Nick? Well, we're on to 2020. I mean, uh, UniteColorado.org is the website for people who want to join this movement, who want to run for office. Uh, this organization uh, did what it said it was going to do 18 months ago. We've built infrastructure. We've recruited uh, great leadership and talent. Uh, we are leveling the playing field with both political parties. And so we are entering the next cycle stronger than uh, where we were 18 months ago. You know, to put this in context, both parties have been doing this for the last 164 years. We're just getting started. And I think this work is more important than ever because inevitably with single party control, of government here in Colorado. Uh, it's not a question of will there be overreach, it's to what extent there will be, and there needs to be a moderating force on our politics. You're talking about the trifecta, the fact that Democrats now have the governorship, a control of this state house and of this state Senate. Nick, thanks for being Thank with you. us. Nick Troiano, executive director of Unite Colorado, which supported a slate of independent legislative candidates, none of whom this cycle were elected. When we come back, Colorado may soon have a new world championship team. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. They said, go, go see Dr. Dahl. I'm Carla Walker from Colorado Public Radio Classical, and that's conductor and lecturer Scott O'Neill, my co-host in the CPR Performance Studio for a new podcast exploring the life and work of one of the great composers, Sergei Rachmaninoff. Rachmaninoff may be the best example, maybe the only example, of a composer who overcame severe writer's block with the help of hypnosis. He'd walk down the street to Nikolai Dahl's house, lie back in a deep, comfortable armchair, and Dahl would speak to him in his soft, hypnotic voice. You will begin to write your concerto. You will work with great facility. The concerto will be of an excellent quality. Hypnosis worked. Rachmaninoff was able to write his second piano concerto, the middle movement of which is absolutely stunning. It starts in this still, dark C minor. And very quickly, it turns to a warm, comforting E major.
Look for CPR's great composers wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks to CPR's supporting members who make digital content like this possible. Learn more at CPR.org. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Our state has all kinds of championship-winning teams, but today we're not going to focus on the Broncos or the Avalanche. Instead, we'll focus on Denver Roller Derby. They're headed to the international championships tomorrow. The team is fifth in the world right now for women's flat track derby. CPR's Alexandra McMahon stopped by one of their practices. At a 1950s-era roller rink in rural Adams County, Denver Roller Derby's all-star team, the Mile High Club, scrimmages their brother league, Ground Control. Wagon Wheel Skate Center in Brighton is only a temporary home for them, but it has everything they need. A large, flat skate floor that provides plenty of room for hip checks and elbow blocks. Being able to have full contact here and throw my body weight around a little bit, you know... That part's fun. I do like that. That's Mile High Club co-captain Scald Eagle, who also reluctantly told me her real name, Hillary Biskovic. MHC are no strangers to the world championships. They've been ranked in the top 10 for almost a decade, says Tracy Disco Acres, who's been with the league since the beginning. You see a lot of leagues come up and down and drop, and, and we've had a lot of rotation through and a lot of big losses throughout the years and a lot of gains and We've been able to sustain everything, and I think this league has such a positive culture, and it, like that's what really makes keeps it afloat. You know, people want to be here and want to stay here. We are each other's like best friends. We all we want to do is hang out with each other all the time. <laughs> and this year, they've got their eyes on the top prize in New Orleans. We've been really putting in some work in the last couple seasons to get medal. up there, and not only medal, medal. but to win the Hydra, which is the uh, World Championship trophy, which is fun because it creates a natural, amazing hashtag for us called hashtag Malhydra. The first voice there is another team captain, Kaylin Klein, who also sometimes goes by Sharon Tacos. Derby names aren't as popular and synonymous with the sport as they used to be, but on the track you still see a creative collection of humorous and punny nicknames darning the backs of jerseys. Before I go any further... A quick crash course in roller derby might be helpful. And yes, there is a lot of crashing. Derby 101, people. Four blockers from each team are lined up on the track. Ten feet behind them, two jammers are lined up, one from each team. We're the ones who score. First whistle blows and the pack takes off. Then a second whistle blows and the jammers take off. Once the jammer breaks through the pack, she hauls ass around the track a second time and tries to score. For every player on the opposing team the jammer passes, she gets a point. Most points wins the game every single time. Now line up and get you some. That's from Drew Barrymore's 2009 film Whip It, starring Ellen Page. And it's often credited with reviving roller derby in popular culture. The kind of derby you see in Denver is slightly different because it's flat track derby. The film also took some liberties with what is considered a legal hit, according to MHC coach Tim Burns. You can't forearm anyone. You can't hit anyone in the back or below mid-thigh, but most of the penalties you'll see here are going to be more of like the contact, illegal contact type of place. Burns is working on getting the team in tip-top shape for the tournament by identifying what works on the track and what might not. What happened there? That was a failed uh, strategy. You shouldn't do that. (laughs) The international championships are set up with a 10-team bracket. 
Mile High Club got to bypass the playoffs because they're ranked as the number four seed team. Their first game in the tournament is against arch-rival Roller Derby out of St. Louis, who seem to have a fitting name according to captains Buskovic and Klein. Since the rankings came out, they have switched to number four and were number five, technically speaking, mathematically. But uh, physically speaking, I hope to uh, set the record straight with them uh, when we play them on Friday. Our, our games with them have always been pretty close. I feel like if we were to pick a rival, it would probably be them. Um, we played them earlier this season and beat them, but that definitely doesn't mean anything. They had a really good showing at playoffs, so uh, it, it'll be a battle. After they play St. Louis, MHC goes up against number one in the world, Victorian Roller Derby, who hail all the way from Melbourne, Australia. The fact that Denver Roller Derby continuously shows up at championships and sees steady growth is a testament to the league's culture. Boscovic says Roller Derby has something special that other sports can't quite match. Because what you find out is it's so much more than just an activity to do after work or after school. Uh, the community of roller derby is next level compared to just town sports that you'd play after you graduate high school or college. Like, it's a very accepting community for no matter what your uh, gender identity is, no matter what your sexual identity is, like, no matter what your identities are, you will, there's a place for you here. The International Roller Derby community will be out in droves this weekend as the 10 teams compete for the Hydra Trophy in New Orleans. I'm Alexandra McMahon, CPR News. Craft beer in Colorado is at a turning point. After years of double, even triple-digit growth, the industry is slowing. Here's CPR's business reporter, Ben Marcus. Full disclosure, this story takes place mostly in brewery tap rooms, and over the course of several days, this reporter did pay for and drink a beer at each spot. The first stop is Renegade Brewing in Denver, one of almost 80 breweries in the city now. The owner, Brian O'Connell, admits it's a little easy to lose perspective here. You, you tend to get a little myopic, and you think, beer rules the world, right? And then, um, yeah, and then you step back and you're like, well, no, actually it doesn't. <laughs> People have other things they can drink, like wine and whiskey, which are seeing stronger sales growth. But it's bigger than that. The independent craft beer industry arguably faces more challenges today than at any other time since Prohibition. You know, in some ways we are talking about the heart and soul of the independent beer industry. The problem can be boiled down to competition, most notably from the largest beer company the world has ever seen, Anheuser-Busch InBev. The company bought up a dozen craft brands across the country, including Colorado's own Breckenridge in 2015. Then it slashed prices on those beers, alarming O'Connell. That's just something that craft is, is independent craft is never going to be able to compete with. An independent brewery will never win the, the price war. So O'Connell is pulling back on distribution and focusing on this neighborhood taproom, where the profit margins are much higher. But a ton of taprooms opened in Denver last year, too, meaning competition is coming from both the biggest and the smallest breweries. Bart Watson, an economist at the Brewers Association, says there are now more than 300 breweries in Colorado. Uh, Kraft has one of the highest market shares of anywhere in the country here in Colorado, and so we may be reaching that point of a mature marketplace where it's more difficult to grow the overall share. And Watson says something big is coming that will amplify the advantages of the big beer companies. On January 1st, grocery stores will be allowed to sell full-strength beer in Colorado. And so that is going to be a sea change um, for a lot of our guys for a variety of different reasons, pluses and minuses. That's Andres Gil Zaldana, who runs the Colorado Brewers Guild. 
We met at Epic Brewing in Denver's Rhino neighborhood. He says many grocery store chains may end up having limited selections, picked by out-of-state executives. Right now, small independent liquor stores call the shots, and many of them have been open to selling small craft brands. So a lot of people who did make you know, heavy investments in distribution, for example, have now come to realize shelf space is limited, right? There are so many different breweries, not only just in Colorado, but out of state that are coming in, that gel space becomes more uh, hard to come by. Still, he says there are lots of grocery stores in Colorado, and so this will probably increase overall sales. Many of his members, they're labeling their beer as independent to try to separate it from the craft beer owned by big beer companies. A few blocks north of Epic is Great Divide, where Brian Dunn and I drink his hazy IPA. Dunn started Great Divide almost 25 years ago, and he says the beginning of grocery store sales will be a shock to the system. I think the smaller breweries are going to suffer. I think some of the larger ones will do okay to improve their sales. We don't quite know how that's all going to shake out. Dunn says sales have softened for many craft brewers this year, thanks to increased competition from other breweries, from wine and liquor, and from Anheuser-Busch. He says the beer giant's price cuts are his number one concern right now. I would be very apprehensive to start a packaging brewery in, in Colorado right now. Dunn has one of the largest in Colorado, a massive facility in Rhino. He may be able to compete and thrive in grocery stores. He has a strong brand that's in 25 states now. Smaller breweries like O'Connell's Renegade have more existential questions. He fears that grocery stores and price competition from Anheuser-Busch will eventually force some independent brewers to close their doors. And if you think that independent beer is important, and you think what they do for your community is important, and you think what they stand for is important, and you think that the art that they bring into this world is important, then yeah, you better pay 11 or $12 for a six-pack, and you better keep them going, or they will be gone. Because O'Connell says the threat isn't just real to the brewery, but for the consumers and the neighborhoods that support their tap rooms. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. Fifty years ago, members of the Colorado Air National Guard got some unexpected news. They were told their unit had been called up. It was among the first National Guard units in the country to be called into service during the Vietnam War. And it wasn't long before many, like Jim Patsy, were sent overseas. Veterans Day is Sunday, and so we asked Patsy to share his experiences with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. Jim, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Andrea. Glad to be on. Thanks for having me. Did you know it was a possibility when you joined the Air National Guard that you'd be called up? Oh, yes. Uh, I I think uh, all of us thought that, uh, uh, hoping it wouldn't happen, uh, but uh, it was always a reality. And um, where were you when you found out your unit had been called? You know, I was, a, I was at work at my job at Public Service Company of Colorado, now XL Energy, and uh, it, came on, it came on the radio in the office there. And, you know, some, some of the guys I worked with knew I was in the guard, and they, they called me over to the radio, and I immediately called my wife and told her, and, and uh, we didn't know what was going to happen, but uh, we're pretty sure where we were headed. And um, do you remember how you felt um, the day you heard what your thoughts were? I don't really remember, but, you know, I'd I'd been married less than a year at that time. So there was that distinct possibility that there was going to be a lengthy separation there for a while. And so uh, that, that had a huge impact on me. 
And you were sent to Phan Rang Air Base in Vietnam. Can you describe what it was like? Well, it was a large base, uh, not that well known uh, uh, at that time. Uh, I'd never heard of it. Uh, it was about it was on <clears throat> in Tu Corps, which is a, a section of the country in military terms on the on the coast on the China Sea. And we were about 60 miles south of a big base called Cameron Bay, which is a big air base. But our base, at the time I left over there, uh, there were 7,000 GIs on that base. So it was big. There were several TAC fighter squadrons working up for the 35th Wing and of the U.S. Air Force, <clears throat> as we were. And then uh, there were some B-57 uh, bomber squadrons there, including one from Australia. What were the conditions like? Well, if Pretty, pretty rudimentary at first. Uh, they, you know, it all happened so suddenly. They didn't have billeting for us really set up. So there were some old abandoned barracks out by the uh, near the perimeter that had been used by the 101st Airborne, and uh, they put us in those. And uh, they they were pretty basic. Uh, it, it was camping almost. Uh, Wooden wooden barracks halfway up screen, the rest of the way up, and pretty open air. But we we had a portable generator with electricity and a shower room uh, separate from the barracks, so uh, you know it was, it was livable. But then later on, uh, can't remember when, uh, less than a half a year later, they had new barracks built uh, in closer to the base and uh, the central part of the base, and they were very nice. What was the general feeling you had about being in Vietnam? Well, you know, I was kind of scared. Uh, I got to say that uh, uh, I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't have a political position on that war at the time. Uh, I was apolitical. Uh, looking back on it, uh, I, I, you know, I have a position now on it, but uh, that came many, many years later. At the time, it was just, you know, I joined the Guard to be a what we called a weekend warrior, which meant we went out to Buckley Field uh, one weekend out of the year, or one weekend out of the month, rather, than we went to summer camp two weeks a year. And uh, that I did that. I joined that to uh, uh, to get out of the draft, you know. And uh, uh, so I, you know, I, I didn't, you know, it was just a war. Uh, I did not have an opinion whether it was the right thing or wrong thing. And um, as an Air National Guard member, um, did you feel like you had a unique role to play while you were um, in Vietnam? Well, we were just there doing our job. Uh, uh, something uh, unique about the Air Guard is that, you know, we'd been working together for quite some time. I joined in 1965, you know, and this was 68. So, uh, you know, the guys I worked with, uh, on my crew, and I, I was on a uh, armor crew, a weapons uh, loading, bomb loading crew. And, uh, you know, I'd known those guys for a long time, and it, it was that way with all the crews. They'd been working together at home, so when we got there, we weren't like the like the inductees and the draftees that just got thrown in with a bunch of people they didn't know. So it, it, it worked more like a, an organized company than than just the the regular military did I think but many of you guys joined not thinking you'd end up in Vietnam well that was the idea uh, for me uh, uh, I would say that the majority of the weekend warriors 
uh, join to avoid being drafted. I'd found out in fall of 65 that I was going to be drafted, my brother and I both, and we both joined. In fact, I had another brother. I had two brothers in the Guard. Only two of us went to Vietnam. One went to Idaho. But uh, I, I, uh, I was, it was strictly to avoid Vietnam, and I wasn't against the war. I was against dying. Right. How often did your base come under attack? Well, quite often. I, I can't give you a specific number, but uh, I know the second or third night we were there, it came under attack. And attack was, um, you know, it's a matter of definition. Uh, it wasn't like there was hordes of soldier, uh, enemy soldiers storming over the, the perimeter. It was people out there in the jungle lobbing mortar rounds and rocket rounds in on us, you know, and that. And so when that started, uh, the sirens would go off, the air raid sirens, and, and we'd all grab our helmets and our flak jackets and run out and get in these sandbag bunkers that were that were ubiquitous over there, you know. Right. And uh, your unit lost two men, I understand. You and your brother were both part of the Colorado Air National Guard unit. You both went to Vietnam. Let's right. listen back to an interview your father did for TV. You had just returned from Vietnam, and your father was standing between you and your brother. You chime in at the end of it. You're smoking a cigar to celebrate being home. Tell us your name. Uh, Francis Patsy. And uh, these are your two sons? My two sons. This is Jim. This is John. You had two sons over there? Yes, sir. Uh, is there anybody else who had that many boys? I don't believe from this outfit. How was the tour? <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> now, because you are from the same family, one of you could have gotten out of the deployment, but you both went. Why is that? Well, we uh, we talked we talked about that. John and I did, and uh, it it would have been our mother's decision as to which one of us stayed home. You know, and and uh, we didn't want to put that on her in case something happened to one of us. Sort of so, like a Sophie's uh, Choice decision there. Yeah, exactly. So uh, <laughs> she, uh, we just both decided we would go. We, we thought it would be safe enough duty on an air base that that uh, we'd probably both be okay with it. There were there were you know there were some other families that had had uh, had more than one person you know one one son in the guard you know the one. Uh, one big banking family in Denver, uh, I won't use the name, but if I said it, if you've been around Denver, you'd recognize it. Uh, they had two sons in the guard unit, and they, and they exercised that option. One of them, one of them was in, in the shop I was in, and he, he stayed uh, stateside, and uh, the other one went over. Mm. And, uh, you know, and that was okay. I was fine with that. We just decided not to do it that way. How did your service in Vietnam affect you? You know, it was a good thing in a way. I, I was a young young guy and and just barely out of my teens you know and and uh i was kind of a juvenile delinquent when i was younger uh-huh. and uh it it matured me a lot and i think that happened to a lot of the guys that were in there you know it's it's a it's a sobering thing and and uh you know i i came back from that experience with a new outlook on life that you know that i could probably uh be uh be more accomplished and more successful in what I was doing at home than what I had been, and and, and I proved that, and I did that. I made a good career for myself, and you know, I think being over there and seeing other guys that were in the unit, you know, some of those guys were already like vice presidents of banks and stuff like that, and I thought, boy, that that uh, I you know I can do as well as they can. So 
you know, that's how it changed me. It grew me up. It matured me. Jim, thanks for joining us. Okay, thank you, Andrea. Uh, appreciate you uh, getting in touch with me. Fifty years ago, Jim Patsy and others in the Colorado Air National Guard were called into service. Their unit, the 120th Fighter Squadron, was the first National Guard unit to be activated during the Vietnam War. Patsy spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. Finally today, music to mark the centennial of the armistice that ended World War I. This is The War Requiem by composer Benjamin Britten, and the lyrics come from an unusual source. It is poetry from the battlefields of Europe during the First World War. Wilfred Owen was a poet and a soldier and wrote about the horrors of trench warfare and chemical weapons. Owen was killed in action just a week before the armistice in 1918. As we mentioned, Sunday is Veterans Day and the 100th anniversary of the end of World War I. CPR Classical will mark the occasion by airing Britain's War Requiem at 7 p.m. Sunday. You can also learn about and hear other music inspired by World War I at CPR.org. Thanks for spending time with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. <laughs>